Blog Talk Radio. Hi, good evening. It's Adriel Hampton, host of Government 2.0 Radio on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, I'm here with my co-hosts Steve Lunsford and Steve Ressler. We've got a great show planned tonight. Uh, we're going to be speaking with uh, William D. Eggers, Bill Eggers, and uh, also John O'Leary, who are the authors of the uh, book, If We Can Put a Man on the Moon, Getting Big Things Done in Government, uh, which actually uh, releases for sale today. Uh, their book launch party is on Wednesday. And uh, Bill Eggers is author of the 2005 book, uh, Government 2.0, I'm talking about the uh, once-in-a-century chance for uh, e-gov reform that uh, this year Gartner said is at the uh, peak of the hype cycle. Uh, So Bill Eggers is a man who was uh, well ahead of the hype on the potential for transforming government through uh, low-cost e-gov technological means, and excited to talk to him about his new book uh, with John O'Leary about uh, managing large systems in government towards uh, successful reforms, and uh, also uh, talk a little bit about that 2005 book, uh, if you haven't already heard me uh, talk about it enough. Uh, but uh, Steve uh, Ressler and Steve Lunsford, thanks for um, joining me. What do you guys have on your minds uh, tonight? Yeah, this is uh, this is Ressler. I can uh, chime in real quick before Lunsford uh, can talk about uh, the Redskins uh, again today. Um, but uh yeah, today was kind of a, a big week for GovLoop. Um it's kind of a, a fun launch this week of uh what we're calling the Awesome Gov Fund, which uh, basically the the idea is it's a it's a charity fund uh to support kind of government awesomeness is uh, I guess the word I use, but uh, the idea is to kind of give back. And uh we launched it um last Thursday and uh through December fifteenth we're donating a dollar for every member that joins GovLoop. And the cool kind of 2-0 twist is uh, the members get to vote on what charity goes to with uh, winner takes all. And there's some pretty cool charities up in the you know in the contest right now. Uh, the Children's Inn at NIH, is, which is a home for sick children, is in the in the lead with 60 votes. Uh, Code for America, which is a, a new nonprofit, uh, most people may know best by the the city camp that they're launching in January, is a kind of a new way to connect Web 2.0. People with local governments. They're in second. Young FCA, which is like a young uh, contractor group in DC. They're third. And uh, Open Forum Foundation, which is a, a cool nonprofit we've had on the Gov2 radio. They've done Gov Love with Jim Gilliam and uh, Wayne and Burke. So um, you know, the contest lasts till December 15th. So I'm sure there'll be lots of more charities and uh, cool contests along the way. But uh, kind of a fun start and uh, more to come. Yeah, I saw some uh, some great lobbying going on too. I was getting uh, email last week. Uh, vote for our project. So if you're good at networking on GovLoop, perhaps it'll have the benefit not only of uh, bringing new members, but getting members active as they lobby for their favorite charities. I like it. Yeah, and I think it's just a cool way to you know give back, I, I, especially through both Cato Radio and GovLoop. There's all these kind of cool nonprofits, some some kind of traditional like age children's in which you're. Uh, straight kind of charities doing good for people in need, and other kind of uh, more startup nonprofits like the you know the Open Forum Foundation and Code for America, and uh, love the opportunity to help support uh, people doing cool stuff in government. Absolutely, and and I also saw. Aren't you pledging to donate five percent of next year's uh, revenues to uh, to charity? Is that part of the project? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, you know, I'm a I'm a big believer in kind of social entrepreneurship. This is kind of the the Tom shoes model of you know, buy for every shoe bought, they give away a pair to to Africa. And um, as GovLoop's moving forward, we're going to try to keep that uh, spirit. So we donate five percent of uh, all revenues. Uh, who knows <laughs> what that'll be? Hopefully, yeah, something. Um, and uh, we'll do it as a way to to give back, whether it's you know donating to cool charities, uh, you know little startups. Um, maybe doing some training educational things around government as well. Um, so it should be kind of a fun year, lots of cool things to come, and as always, kind of uh, listening to the community to decide what to do. Great. Lunsford, what do you got for us, man? You know, just one real quick thing before we uh, bring uh, Bill and John on. This week I, I stumbled across something that was launched, I guess, uh, without a lot of fanfare, but the Navy has launched a, a full-on social media page that lists uh, Twitter sites, Facebook sites, blogs, and others for uh, most of the department. Um, at Navy News is the one that pulled that together. I'll tweet out the directory under both my ID and, and GovTwit here for folks who want to uh, visit it. But it, I tell you, if I had, if, if more agencies would do something like this, um, you know, I would have never built GovTwit because it, it makes it so easy to find uh, those official accounts for, for an agency and kind of where to connect with them to the various social media channels. So I thought that was cool. I had a chance actually to chat with the uh, the PAO there, runs at Navy News this week about that um, and, and why they put it together and how they put it together, and I thought it was pretty cool. So at least uh, give them a little shout-out. Great. Looking forward to taking a look at that. And then we, we won't do it tonight, but uh, one of these shows here soon, i got to pick some uh, intro music. I, I kind of like... Uh, you know, the dun, 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 but maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put several <laughs> clips up and, and do the uh, collaborative thing and let people vote on what Yeah, because I'm sure Lucasfilm would love that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, I, maybe it's fair use if it's five seconds or less. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, on a more serious note, we'll bring in uh, our guest uh, for tonight. We have uh, uh, Bill Eggers and uh, John O'Leary with us, and if you didn't catch us at the top of the hour, uh, their new book, If We Can Put a Man on the Moon, uh, Doing Big Things in Government, uh, from Harvard Business Press, is coming out uh, actually today. Uh, it goes on sale at Amazon. And I guess, um, Bill, are you having a book launch on Wednesday? Uh, yes, we are. We're having a, a big uh, book launch in, in Washington, D.C., in a partnership with the National Academy of Public Administration's annual meeting, and also government executive, uh, partnership for public service, and the senior executive association will all be sponsoring that launch, uh, which will be at the Hyatt Grand Regency. And anyone is welcome from six to eight. Great. And do we have John O'Leary on the line? I'm not sure if I got him correctly or not. Yes, I'm right here. Okay, fantastic. Thank you uh, so much, guys, for joining us. Um, I just uh, finished a, a speed reading of your book um, and found it very interesting. Also, you know, a big fan of uh, Bill, your 2005 government uh, 2.0, which I found out about last year very early in kind of the uh, start of the mass uh, popularization of, of Gov 2.0 as a meme. Um, but why don't you guys uh, tell us a little bit about um, why this book, what you hope to accomplish with it? It seems you know, like you're really throwing uh, a way of looking at, at government out there, uh, you know, not just uh, as a chronicle, but as an impetus for change. 
Sure, I can start off and then and John can continue. We uh, Two reasons, really, why we wrote the book. Uh, first, we wanted, it was anticipation of a new administration. We knew it was going to have a lot on its plate. So we started about two years ago, two and a half years ago, doing this research. We wanted to provide a guide for how the incoming administration could avoid some of the mistakes of the recent past and by doing so, kind of reclaim our country's legacy of confidence in large undertakings. But secondly, believe it or not, but very little has been written on this important topic of executing large initiatives in government. Visit any bookstore, you'll see titles on policy and politics and how to succeed in business, but you won't find hardly any books that address these real-life challenges of doing some of the, you know, the most important things our country is doing. So we really hope to, to fill that gap and do something that people could follow, whether it was implementing Gov 2.0 initiative or health care reform or immigration reform, cap and trade, what have you. Yeah, and I would say that, uh, you know, one of the big things that we tried to do in this book is to look at the question of how government executes on large things and to do so in a way that gets past some of the uh, political questions. Everyone wants to talk about what government should do, and it's a valid question, but the ideological and partisan arguments just dominate the media in Washington, D.C., and so we wanted to step back and put on our engineer hats. Uh, I'm an engineer, process engineer by trade, and to really look at this as um, what is the process by which a government accomplishes large undertakings, and when we did that, you're, you're able to sort of see the patterns of success and failure more clearly and hopefully provide a guide for people to make better choices, both about what government should do um, and also when you're trying to execute on things, you know, better ways of avoiding some of the traps that are out there in the public sector. And, and it's interesting because you, you uh, tackle it, the book is basically about systems thinking and then you have a, a, a real simple process map which, uh, as, as I read through the book, have got you know each step of the process and kind of the the, the big traps you face at that part of the uh, the process. I was like, oh man, I'm losing more and more hope. But uh, I, I want to ask you guys before we get to some of the, the 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 really potent lessons that you put together out of this book, can you give us a little background about y your own CVs? I know that. Um, I think it mentions 40 years of, of work with the public sector, something like that, between the two of you? Yeah, I think between Bill and I, I think we have run um, four agencies in two different states. We have been writing on and studying government for, yeah, you know, 40 years combined. Um, and I'm actually also a local elected official. So we have been – you know, in a variety, I've also consulted to government as Bill, Bill does, and I think we have seen the struggles of uh, government trying to execute from the inside, from the outside, and it really, you know, it was great working with Bill. He's got an amazing amount of knowledge, and as you mentioned, he's uh, got a great grasp of the, um, you know, government 2.0, web 2.0 tools that are beginning to make inroads into the public sector, and I also have a certain amount of private sector experience, so I had... Uh, some 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 background to draw on there. And and Bill, you've written uh, several books about uh, public sector uh, challenge and reform, right? Yeah, I think this is number five or six somewhere somewhere in there. Um, 
my 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 brothers decided to to, to write books that would uh, appeal to a, a wide wide group of people, and I somehow decided I, I wanted to spend my my career writing about government reform. Uh, it, it doesn't make me the most popular person always at a cocktail party, I will say. But um, I think this book, in some respects, is a culmination of a lot of them. We've a lot of the books have really focused on kind of both where government is going. Uh, in the future, you know, the 2005 uh, book, Governing um, Government 2.0, which laid out how technology is going to transform government, uh, the Governing by Network, which laid out a new organizational model uh, for government. And a lot of that has really happened over the last few years. And this book is how do you get there? How do you actually execute these big transformations and implementations? And I think, uh, you know, this I learned certainly a lot in, in in doing this, and just you can have the greatest idea in the world, but uh, if you can't execute it, uh, then it doesn't mean that much. And so I, I really think this this book can be a a guide for anyone that's trying to do you know important things in government, that's trying to really bring our government into the into the 21st century. And uh, you know we still continue to do a lot of work on Gov 2.0 and uh, government redesign uh, based on technology, and the lessons in this book will be one of the key things, I think, to help us uh, to get there. You know, Bill, this is Steve Lunsford. Um, you mentioned that, that you took a, a different tack than your brothers who write more, I guess, more popular types of things. You took this niche. Uh, but I, I tell you, I, I think that, that you all very purposely, I'm assuming very purposely, made this an extremely accessible book. It's not certainly not for wonks. It's it's got great anecdotes written in a way that, that really wants to drive you from reading the one section to the next to figure out, you know, what these, these traps were. So uh, I'm assuming, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming you wanted this to have as broad of an audience as possible and make it as easily accessible uh, to break down these, you know, what you all set up as, as these, these traps. Yeah, we absolutely, this is John, we absolutely, uh, you know, we knew that this, this material can be, can be very dry and it can but we think it's so important that we actually put an awful lot of effort into bringing it alive and telling stories because that's that's how people really absorb and so we try to combine our insights and to illustrate them with um, examples from history that people are aware of whether it's the Apollo moon landing or the Marshall Plan or Nixon's wage and price controls or um, you know, acid rain in the 1980s or what have you, to try to illustrate uh, how government really operates and then to present our thinking, which is, you know, we have decades of experience in the public sector, um, our thinking around what we learn from these experiences. Because w one of the things that we did during the book is we had the unhappy task of reading a number of very, very thick post-mortem on a variety of government failures, the Katrina failure, the Boston Big Dig tunnel collapse, the, uh, the Challenger and Columbia shuttle disasters. And after each one of these major failures, government actually has uh, at least one study, and they put out the 9-11 Commission, puts out a big study that sort of says, these are, these are, this is what happened, and these were the mistakes that were made. But those documents cannot be read and absorbed by a normal human being. And the academic and textbook literature on, on sort of policy and public sector management is incredibly hard to get through. So we tried to take and distill the lessons from those things and our experience and to put them into a book that people can read and hopefully enjoy reading and still get the lessons out of them. Yeah, I think the, the, the high praise. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. 
Go ahead. Uh, the highest praise, uh, two authors who, who we absolutely love, uh, uh, Chip and Dan Heath, who wrote Made to Stick, which is a fantastic book on how to make your ideas sticky, uh, called the book after reading a government uh, policy thriller, which, uh, which for, for us, that was about the highest praise you can have. And we, we write about Yoda, and Barry White is in there, and the Stargate is the name of a chapter, and we've got a chapter on Tolstoy syndrome. So we tried to, you know, to bring in a lot of things from both popular, you know, from kind of more, you know, popular literature and popular culture, and, and relate it through narrative and story, which is how people really learn. I, I found it interesting. You reference a, a lot of business books, and also the fact that there there are so many uh, popular uh, nonfiction works on business and on uh, you know how to how to run a big corporation or biographies uh, by by famous uh, CEOs. But you don't find a lot of of popular literature on government reform. And then you you, you make the uh, very convincing argument that. Uh, government is much more difficult than the private sector uh, as far as uh, bringing large initiatives to completion. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no doubt. We've both worked in, in the public sector, private sector, and nonprofit sectors, and it's, it's just harder in government. As, as you all know, government has um, – uh, there's a whole set of, of rules and, and so forth that don't exist in the – in the private sector, but mostly, I mean, you have a, a whole other step of getting a big initiative through in the public sector, and that's what taking something through what we call the Stargate or the legislature, Congress, uh, at the federal level, which is essentially a whole different world. Um, and before you can implement a, a big initiative, a design, you have to get it through there uh, very often. And politics comes in, and a whole variety of other issues come in that, for the most part, people in the private sector uh, simply don't have to deal with. And then you have that real problem that the, that the political realities of large initiatives are very different from the bureaucratic challenges of actually implementing and having success in those initiatives. Yeah, there, there, there's no doubt that we, we, we use the metaphor uh, for, for getting a bill into a law, which is, you know, sort of the health care reform bill is, is right, right hanging out before Stargate right now, and it's getting whacked out like a pinata right, right before it gets through. And in, the, in science fiction, the Stargate is a, is a, a gateway uh, that takes you from one universe to another instantly, and you walk through it, and suddenly you're in another universe. And you can't really go back once you go through it. And really, in a lot of ways, public policy is like that. It's developed in the political universe. It's developed in the legislature, in the world of ideas and think tanks, and becomes a legislation. And it gets right up to the Stargate, and then suddenly there's a vote. The president signs it, and boom. It's in a new universe. It's in the bureaucratic universe where a whole new group of people, those are you know, in, the, in the executive branch only and in the, um, in the bureaucracy, now have to implement it. And they really you know, have to take and work with whatever has been sent through the, through the, the legislative process. And that disconnect between the designers and the implementers is a very, very uh, challenging fact of life in the public sector. And one of the things we argue for is we need to rethink the way we design things and we need to try to find a way that we can integrate the thinking of the implementers and the designers. In fact, this book... Uh, in covering both the idea and design phases as well as the implementation and launch of a big initiative kind of breaks the rules on, on 
public sector writing where you're only supposed to either write about policy or you're supposed to write about the bureaucracy. You're not supposed to write about both. And we saw that as a very, very foolish um, separation. We're trying to bridge that gap and try to bring the thinking together that you're not writing a piece of legislation. You're writing a design for something that's going to have to work in the real world. And that's the biggest disconnect that uh, we find in, in, in what's going on right now in Congress. And, and I love it that you. There's a bit where you say you. Someone is quoted saying, "You know, you've arrived in the bureaucracy when the 29-year-old from the new administration is interviewing you instead of the 22-year-old uh, talking about the political appointees who come in and kind of for the first several months are there to just push the bureaucracy around, uh, while the the career civil servants are kind of going, well, if we could work together." Uh, let me yes. read it, a quick section out of Stargate and then get some questions from, from Steve uh, Ressler here. In the Stargate Trap chapter, it says, The best that can be said of the Stargate Trap is that it sometimes kills bills that deserve to die. More often, the damaging distortion effects on a policy proposal are profoundly negative. Sometimes a bill sits out there and gets picked apart like a wounded animal by opponents eventually being killed. Sometimes a bill gets loaded with so many goodies and special exemptions to gain the support needed for passage, the final bill becomes unrecognizable from the original idea, or perhaps the bill is rammed through with little debate. None of these routes through the Stargate enhance democracy. I think it's great that you've taken a look at start to finish instead of uh, what do you do with, uh, with a flawed bill that comes through, or uh, you definitely can't <clears throat> ignore that phase. Yeah, and, and you know what, I, I, I think you know combining the Gov 2.0 stuff with this book is that I mean, I think that right now we have so many opportunities to use social media to improve every stage of the journey from idea to results, but especially those early stages. And uh, we, talk, we talk about this in the book, but I think this is one of the areas where we can take a lot further. You can use Web 2.0 to make it easier that to happen to the large number of experts, uh, to improve the ideation process. You can really get to the line level. So if you're looking at immigration reform, We've had years of two sides, and you know that we always have the same people who are testifying, and we know exactly what they're going to say ahead of time. People who you know don't want to see any increase in immigration, and those who want to see a big increase. Well, let's hear from other people, other people in business. Let's hear from the Laredo chief. Let's hear from a lot of the people who are working for customs and immigration through crowdsourcing techniques. And I also think we can dramatically improve the policy design process by using things like simulation and gaming, second life technologies and others to allow policymakers to kind of war game how these different policy proposals might work or not work in the real world before they're adopted. And we're seeing a lot of changes in the healthcare reform legislation constantly. We don't know whether those are going to work or not. And, but at the very least, we should be doing some simulations. We should be testing some of those out with some of the technologies that we now have to be able to do that. And I also think we can use prediction markets to dramatically improve the policy design and execution process because you can surface to the leadership timelines or strategies that are unlikely to work in practice by using prediction markets and, and having a lot of the people you know, doing the line level work out in the field who are kind of voting on when they think something will actually happen. And then oftentimes you'll see a misalignment between what headquarters might think, and then what the field does, and some of these Web 2.0 technologies bring those to the surface. Yeah, this is uh, Steve Ressler chiming in. Um, 
I think that's right on point. And uh, I think we're at kind of a, a, a crux point on a lot of this where, um, you know, that the, this uh, official open government directive is, uh, I guess it was supposed to drop last week. Now it's been delayed a couple weeks. But it's, we're kind of at the, the cusp of kind of the top-down um, directive telling agencies to do more of this, whether it's, you know, open government or, or government 2.0. There's a lot of overlap. Maybe kind of based on your research, can, can you kind of uh, hypothesize how how this transformation happens? I mean, for for me, this sounds a, a lot like kind of eGov um, the first time around when I wasn't actually in public service. So, I mean, what does this process look like? Is it a three-year process? You know, where are we on the hype cycle, and and how will people actually start adopting? Do you have any hypotheses on that? Um, well, well, I'll start off, and I, I think if from the standpoint of kind of the open government and transparency, um, I, right, right now, one of the things you need is you need you need a good idea, and a lot of the idea is there, but what's not completely, I don't think, there is the design and the destination. In order to have a deep change, you need to have a very, very clear destination for where people are going to go, where they can envision what comes out on the other side, essentially, um, and and see, you know, I think everyone understands that where we are, are right now doesn't make a lot of sense, but I think a lot of that envisioning of what exactly government would look like uh, in the future based on all the technologies, and I think it's not only crowds, it's crowds and clouds, right? I, cloud computing is going to have a, a huge impact, and so I think a little bit more of that needs to take place, and then you you script a lot of moves on on the way there, and you go through this this journey, as we've mentioned. And um, but I think you know the one thing that is happening here, which is smart, is that there's a lot of pilots going on, a lot of prototyping, which is which is terrific. So we're learning a lot about what works and what doesn't work through the kind of letting a thousand flowers bloom. And traditionally, as we looked at a lot of successful initiatives, whether it's welfare reform or others. That was the that was the key to success was that you had a lot of smaller prototypes where you could fail small and fail fast, and 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 that's one of the beauties of I think a lot of the the new Gov 2.0 type initiatives is that you can do these smaller, you can do them quickly, and you can see what works and what doesn't work rather than spending the three years and trying to have kind of the perfect architecture and framework laid out. John, if, if yeah, if I think when I think of technology um, in in government, I think that. Uh, a lot of what's been done prior has been use of technology for incremental changes. And I think that what we're on the cusp of and just beginning to see is technology driving transformational change. And I'll give you an example. Um, if you sign up for your uh, welfare benefits uh, online, that's an incremental change. It's slightly more efficient than going in person or having a phone call or whatever. But if you have a, a completely new way of delivering a service, like an online school, in Florida, where kids can earn a high school degree attending online in a virtual school, that's transformative because, you, you, you know, you, you've totally taken out a whole bureaucracy. Um, incremental changes when the post office uses email to notify you when your, you know, overnight package has arrived. Transformational is when you step back and you say, wait a second, why is it that we have the federal government involved in any way in people carrying around pieces of paper? Unlike 250 years ago, no one waits for snail mail for anything. And I ask the question to anybody, you know, what would happen if the post office only delivered on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays? 
how would your life change? And it's 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 virtually non-existent that the value that gets delivered by having six day a week uh, delivery. So it's I think transformational change through technology is what's coming next. Bill, let me ask you a question. Going back to um, to the Government 2.0 book from 2005, um, it, it's interesting. You, you uh, in the new book, you guys use some examples of Web 2.0 uh, TSA initiatives. Uh, I believe you were talking to uh, one of the uh, NASA um, uh, astronauts uh, who who was um, uh, had to work on some of those reports that you're talking about, about large-scale failures in the Columbia and... Uh, Sally Ride, the first female astronaut in space. Yeah, and, and she brought up Web 2.0, I, I believe, as, as a tool for really uh, transforming process. And then I, I look at, in Government 2.0, uh, the book, you're talking mostly about eGov. I think that you actually coined the term Government 2.0, at least in, 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 uh, in print that I know of. Um, but it, it's not really at all about Web 2.0. It's really about using uh, definitely what John was talking about, uh, systematic change through technology initiatives. talks about things like online schools. One of the things I liked the most was the uh, uh, kind of G to, G to B or, or B to G, changing how business and government interact. Like you could have, uh, like the fact that it takes TurboTax to simplify tax filing. Why, you know, why couldn't the government do that? Uh, for you and save a lot of money and 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 give citizens something uh, you know they don't have to rely on on a third party vendor for. Um, but how do you see if you're writing that book of 2.0 today? How would it be different? Well, yeah, I wrote the book. You know, a lot of it was written even in the early 2000s, and um, and so. You know, Web 2.0. Even when I was finishing the book, I think Tim O'Reilly maybe only coined Web 2.0 a, a few months even before this book came out. And so I, I did have a couple chapters on looking at digital democracy and collaboration. So I did talk about it, but it, at that time, the technologies were fairly primitive in that regard. But there was a you know sections on community practices and things like that. Um, but I did try to take it a little bit wider right now. One of the things I did talk about was, you know, intelligent transportation systems and using putting GPS devices in cars and getting rid of the gas tax so people would just be charged per mile and you reduce congestion and lo and behold, what what today there was an article in the uh, newspaper that the Dutch government plans to do that uh, throughout the entire country. Uh, rather than in road tax on cars, they're going to pay a few cents for every kilometer kilometer on the road. So, you know, we've seen a lot of the things have taken place. What um, what I'd be writing a lot more about now would be some of the things that I that I just mentioned, because I do believe that uh, both cloud computing, real-time web, a lot of the crowdsourcing and other things are going to have major, major transformational impacts. But I, I think the most important thing in that regard is, is what I mentioned, that we're in this we're in, in, in the middle of a big transformation in the private sector right now um, where, where we're seeing essentially a disruptive innovation that's occurring. Uh, we're seeing exponential change because with Moore's Law and so forth, this is the only technology we've ever seen 
where the rate of change is not leveling out. So we've gone from an, an S-curve kind of where technology will, will level out at a certain point and get, give people a chance to catch up and figure out how to use it. Every other technology has been like that, yet not digital technology here, not the Internet, Web 2.0 and cloud. It's an exponential rate of change, and I think that that's going to require massive changes in governments, just like the in Industrial Revolution and in private organizations. And I think what, what people are struggling with now is that no one can kind of envision what comes next. What really would a regulatory agency look like in, in this new world with um, all the barriers to entry, which are just absolutely falling due to cloud computing when a group of four people we, I went, I was out in Silicon Valley and I saw a, a group of four young engineers, all under 26 years old, who were able to develop a software program to analyze 350 million mortgage applications and find out where all the predatory lending had been and so forth. They did it in about three weeks. It would have taken the Federal Reserve years to do beforehand. So those are huge fundamental changes. But I think it's very hard for people to get their arms around what comes next, and I think a, a lot of work needs to be done on that piece. And John, as a systems engineer or as a process engineer, how do you, in tackling the subjects that you do and if we can put a man on the moon, how do you see government responding to the rate of technological change that we're experiencing? I mean, one of the things that the, the book, I think the scariest part is where it, it actually talks about that Perhaps the uh, moon landing could not be done at today's NASA because it's become so bureaucratic. And in the 60s, it was a brand new agency. Uh, wh what do you see happening in this, you know, intensely transformative period? Yeah, I think that that is is the biggest concern. Um, you know, we we are uh, in a period of amazing challenges in terms of the economy and in terms of you know the the, the foreign policy situation. We're in two foreign conflicts right now, and we've got issues with immigration and healthcare and global warming. But the thing that scares me the most is the mismatch between the challenges and the capacity of government today to, to meet those challenges. And I think that really, as much as anything, you know, we're, we're witnessing and waking up to the realization that the government that we have right now isn't, isn't operating, isn't meeting the challenges, isn't, doesn't have the processes, systems, and structures that is – that is up to ta tackling the big challenges right now. And so, you know, what I see as, you know, the other huge driving factor is that we are on, essentially, an unsustainable trajectory financially that will require change. And so the thing that encourages me is that we, I believe that technology and the private sector is demonstrating that there is other, there are other ways of doing things. And what we need to do now is to work through our politics and work through our democratic processes to get government on a path towards uh, being able to handle those challenges better. And that's what I think from a process, we need to start focusing on the processes of how government operates to make them better because they're not working well today. John, this is Steve Lunsford. Now, you, in, in the book, you guys have examples from, uh, from outside the U.S. as well, from Japan and the U.K., um, I'm not sure if there's if there's one or two more, but are there things that are being done on a global basis outside of the U.S. and outside of maybe even outside of federal government, looking at state and local? Are there some best practices that that are you know pockets of best practices that can be brought to this country or or again exported out? 
Yeah, I think there always are. And, you know, one of the reasons that we, we, we focused mostly on U.S. examples, but we, did, we sort of did – one of the things we tried to do to take the, the political aspect of this out of the equation was to use mostly historical examples. And so we also used a couple of foreign examples because I think it's easier for people to learn and to hear the lessons of things if they don't immediately uh, associate emotionally with – with kind of their own views on uh, a particular policy issue. But the fact of the matter is there are um, things happening overseas that we really do need to think about and learn from. Um, and sort of it, 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 part of our, including those foreign examples, was to try to open up our, our thinking in the United States to sort of other models of tackling big questions. And, and Steve, one of the things that makes it easier to do some of this in other countries and parliamentary forms of government is simply that this, this big gap you see between the designers and the implementers in, in the U.S., that, that narrows dramatically when you have a parliamentary form of government and essentially you have the government uh, um, minister uh, who is essentially then directing the civil service uh, to do this policy that the government has gotten behind in, at the cabinet level. And so that without the giant protracted fights that you would see in, in the legislature, they're able to have designs that are a little bit more clean in terms of uh, the workability of them. And uh, both in the U.K. and in Canada over the last few years, they've taken this notion of implementability pretty seriously, and in Canada now, bills of a certain size have to go through a kind of a gateway analysis to make sure that they're implementable. You've got a number of countries where large IT projects also have to go through these kind of a gateway processes, just so we're, we're le learning some lessons in terms of how to actually do these and do them well. I, I, um, I think that there's a real appetite now for governments to be pretty pretty radical on this. I spoke uh, last week uh, in San Francisco to state speakers of the House, uh, majority leaders and speaker pro tems from about 30 different states, a bipartisan group of people, and uh, I've never seen so much interest in, in at the legislative level in being, being willing to just kind of look at uh, a complete rethinking of, of how we deliver services uh, and how some of these agencies are organized. And that's because states are facing a, a really, really big budget gap right now. And you've also got a whole slew of new governors that are likely to come in. And so I, I, I expect to see a lot, of, um, a lot of innovation, a lot of new thinking over the next few years. And at the federal level, uh, the Obama administration is going to be requiring all the federal agencies to reduce their budgets by 5%. And that sort of uh, um, you know budgetary re reduction, after a number of years of, of fairly good budgets, certainly within the defense and intelligence and other agencies, I think is going to have an effect requiring uh, agencies to you know find new and better ways of delivering these services at a much lower cost. Hey, this is uh, Steve Ressler chiming in again, and. Uh, one other question I kind of have uh, on the whole process is uh, the issue of, of talent in the, in the public service. Um, I think you got in a little bit uh, of it into the book about uh, getting the best and the brightest in the public service. And 
you know, there was the, the generation of the, the best and the brightest around the, the Vietnam War, I think it was, and uh, President Obama is committed to trying to make government cool again and uh, get the, the best and the brightest to, to not work on Wall Street, which they don't want to work on anymore, uh, but to get them to work in, into uh, work in government. Kind of wondering your, your take on that. Um, how important is, is getting the right people in the government to actually make these big changes and how can government do that? Well, one of the things I think that we recognize is I was the chief human resource officer for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And the personnel systems that we have in place, number one, you have a retirement system that is entirely geared around essentially lifetime employment. Our vesting schedule in Massachusetts for the retirement system was for 10 years. So if you, if you, if you were hired by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and worked for less than 10 years, there was never any contribution made to your to your retirement. In fact, you would you would um, you'd get 10% of your money withheld, and then you would leave after eight or nine years in service. You'd get all your money back plus one percent of your interest. How does that work for you uh, attracting talent? It doesn't. The systems that we have in government and the compensation systems, particularly on high end talent, you just can't even come close to to um, competing with really good. Uh, jobs in the private sector. What government has going for it and needs to exploit, the one competitive advantage it has as an employer is the fact that you can make a difference. You can make an enormous difference if you're talented. And one of the things we try to do in the book is actually inspire uh, readers to recognize that noble element that I think has been lost in our culture a little bit um, of those folks who do make a commitment to public service and who do uh, apply their talents in government to make it run, you know, as best as it possibly can, and the the, the sort of um, public recognition that 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 deserves. But government absolutely operates, in general, systematically at some disadvantages. And, and I think one of the issues is that we we the system, as as John mentioned is set up basically for people who want to spend their careers in government 30 years. And, you know, people, uh, the Gen Y generation, Gen X generation, even my generation, they, they, they want to move in and out of the public sector, the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and they, they want to make a difference, and they don't believe that government's the only place to make a difference today. We, we need much more flexible systems that where you don't lose all your seniority, where you can move in and out, you know, in other countries in Australia, New Zealand, and elsewhere, they've done a really good job creating much more flexible systems, and they've made it. Um, they've made it so if you come out uh, from government, you know, you you get very good jobs in the private sector, and you can move back in again. And I think we need to do a little bit more of that here. The the other thing is government's going to need to get much better at at partnering, and and you know that's the subject of governing by network book, but. When I visited the, the, the firm Palantir out in Silicon Valley, you know, they do a lot of work uh, with DOD and with intelligence, and they've got some of the best young engineers in the world. And the fact of the matter is they're working, you know, 24 hours a day. They sleep there sometimes. It's that kind of Silicon Valley environment. But they, they don't want to go into government necessarily, you know, and the agencies have tried to get them, and I think, but we still want to be able to utilize people like that to create more public value and we need to have you know systems in place to where we can where we can do that and i think we're going to end up seeing 
with cloud computing where smaller groups of people can do amazing things that it would have taken large organizations to do before. I think government's going to have to get a lot better at contracting with smaller, kind of more deep boutique firms at a very kind of pinpoint way who can do very certain things that they need to have done without going through kind of a massive bureaucracy or people who just know how the system works. And, and guys, we've got just about 30 seconds left, and I'm sorry we could go on for, for a long time, I'm sure. Um, John, I, if you could do maybe just the, the elevator pitch for what these traps are and, and why people need to read this book to uh, do their jobs better, uh, whether it's in public service or government uh, public policy leadership. Yeah, if We Can Put a Man on the Moon is the guide to the public policy process of going from ideas to results. And there are uh, traps, systemic process, hidden traps, all along that journey. And what this book does is it lays out those traps. It lays out strategies for dealing with them. It's not a recipe book for, you know, perfect cake every time kind of thing, but it will increase, I believe, the chances of anybody who wants to achieve something positive through government of whatever kind. It doesn't have to be a big program. You can be arguing to, to make government smaller, to argue for school choice. It's, it's nonpartisan, but it will improve the likelihood of success in our government being able to achieve what it sets out to do. All right. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us. And uh, much appreciated, and hopefully we'll be uh, hearing more about the book. Uh, I hope to do some blogging about some of the ideas in there and uh, look forward to, uh, to hopefully more people reading it and, and uh, doing good things with it. Uh, thank you, uh, Steve Lunsford and Steve Ressler. Uh, next week we'll be on, uh, but most likely it will be earlier uh, in the day on Sunday, we'll be talking with David Hale uh, from Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, I'll, I'll be over in D.C. Uh, we, we may do a live show if we're able to set it up. Uh, so watch for, uh, for that. It will be either Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon. Uh, but we'll be talking about health and innovation. Uh, thank you, everybody, and I hope to uh, speak to you again in the future. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.